again and welcome to Sunrise Community Church. It is so good for us to be together today. Thank you, worship team, for leading us, pointing us to Christ this morning. I always love and come and singing with you. I laugh about this often with you guys. It's the only place where I sing with grown-ups, and it probably is for you as well. And there's a reason. Music is very powerful. It teaches us theology, and it's really a form of catechism, in fact. Uh, We confess these truths together, and music has a powerful way of bringing us together in the emotion. Sometimes it's wrapped up in the music. just has a powerful way of engaging our hearts and minds also uh, in the worship of of the Lord. So I'm very grateful uh, for David and for the team and the way they serve each and every week. We are going to be in the Gospel of Luke again this morning. Gospel of Luke, and we're going to be in chapter 3. And as you're finding that, I do have one announcement that I neglected to make earlier. Uh, We will not have our men's and women's studies this week, so if you're a regular part of those, uh, don't come this week. You're welcome to come. We just won't be here uh, for those. It's spring break week, so we have many people traveling um, and out, but feel free to have your own little thing going on at the picnic tables or in the parking lot. That would be fine. But we will not uh, meet this week. We'll pick it back up the following week. And I would encourage you, uh, if you uh, have the interest and time, uh, these studies have been really, really fruitful. I've enjoyed our men's studies so much with, at our, with our guys at 6.15 in the morning and then also at 9 o'clock, and then our ladies have a morning study as well and an evening study. So if you are interested in those, let me know, and we will get you the right information that you need for those. We're going to look this morning at the Son of God and the Son of Man. Who is Jesus Christ? That's the most fundamental question that anybody can ask in life. And I sort of made a last-minute call here to adjust a little bit, and we're not actually going to go through uh, verse 38. I want to just deal with the baptism of Christ this morning because there's so much to that. So we're going to take just verses 21 and 22, and then we'll come back the next week. And that's one of the beauties here of a place like Sunrise, and what we do is called expositional preaching, may or may not be a familiar term, expositional, and it just means that we go through books of the Bible. We go through verse by verse, sometimes word by word, thought by thought, through the scriptures, and there's no real rush to make it through anything in particular, because we're just going to come back the next week and pick up where we left off. So I do have a plan, but as I've told you before, I come for the same reason you do, to see exactly what I'm going to say on a given Sunday morning. So we'll do it together here. You know, the question of identity... And purpose, it's a lingering question that everybody seems to have. And I think our teens struggle with this in particular ways, but it's not exclusive to teens, is it? There's a reason we have such a thing as a midlife crisis, and now that I'm firmly in that category of life, you start to see that happening more and more. And you probably, maybe if you're honest, maybe only with yourself, maybe only with a small circle of friends, you've probably had those moments at night or you wake up in the morning and you think, what am I doing with my life? Anybody ever had that? Maybe you want to raise your hand. Maybe some of you are like, nah. But I have a friend that struggles with that. I get it. What am I doing? Who am I? Why am I here? What is life really all about? What's my purpose? Just to make a few dollars and retire well and to live out the remainder of your days here on earth? What am I doing? What is my purpose? A few years ago, a friend of mine, he's a little bit older than me, he was, and he had a, a high-level job at an oil and gas company. And he was telling me about an interaction, interactions with employees that were younger than him and a little bit younger than me. 
And he was very positive on a lot of the aspects that this group is bringing to the workforce. But he told me about this one, I just don't know if I can do this job anymore. And he was doing well. He was on his way in the company. He says, I just don't, this job just doesn't fulfill me. And my friend said, this job is never going to fulfill you. And my job is not to provide a job that fulfills you. You're looking for fulfillment and meaning in something that can't actually give it. And it's a great opportunity for the gospel and a great opportunity to talk about why are we here? I think the same conversation is going on with us today. We come to our text this morning, and the reason I introduce it in that way is our identity, our meaning, our purpose is wrapped up in the identity of Christ. We say this sometimes as Christians, that our true identity is in Christ. What do we actually mean by that? Who was Christ, and in what way is our identity wrapped up in him? In some ways, this will be just an introduction to that topic, and then we'll spend the rest of Luke and the rest of the New Testament studies looking at what does it mean to be identified with Christ. The question really has to start with who then was Christ if our identity is wrapped up in his person and work? And if you claim to be a Christian here this morning, what you're saying is that you are confessing that your purpose, your meaning, your reason for existence is wrapped up in another person, and that is the person of Jesus Christ. It's a pressing question. Who was Jesus, and what does it mean to be identified with him? It was a pressing question in the first century, who was Jesus Christ? And that's part of the reason we have four gospel accounts, four counts of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And in this little section that we're going to look at today, we get some really, really insightful looks into the person of Jesus Christ. There are passages like this that are fairly easy to understand on the surface. Luke does this to us throughout the gospel, and you've probably already seen this. He'll say something, and it just seems really simple. You've probably read this passage many times if you're a Christian. It goes something like this. Jesus, he comes out, he's baptized by John. The heavens open up, the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus, and then the Father speaks audibly that this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Well, That seems simple enough on the surface, but what if you start really drilling down into what those phrases actually mean? That's what we're going to try to do today. Reality is something that's always a little bit more complicated than we think, isn't it? Anybody remember a science class of my generation, maybe a little older? We had the old school microscopes that had the little rotary clicking thing on it. You guys remember that? Going to science class... I don't know, what was it, sixth, seventh grade, something like that. And you take the little piece of hair and you put it on the, on the slide, on the glass, and you look at it under one magnification and then you click it and look closer and then you click it and look closer still. And a piece of hair seems so simple and smooth, but then you start to look closer and closer and closer. You're like, there's actually tons of ridges in here and there's actually little craters and it looks like the surface of the moon, my piece of hair does. At that point in time, I could use my own hair for this experiment. That may not work anymore. I may have to make a friend in lab to do it again. But I think studying the Bible and studying the Gospels and theology can feel a little bit that way sometimes. On the surface, it's like, yeah, we can make sense and we can see the flow of the story. And, 
But as we start to really look at what's going on, as we start to click the microscope and, and drill down on some of these questions, there's just a vast sea of information and theology that's just sort of lurking right there under the surface. So what I want to do today is just take us into this text, and we're just going to explore some tributaries. I'll be your guide as we walk through this text and see where this ends us. We're not going to explore every little tributary that we could off of this because we would never make it back in time for lunch, but I do want to look. There's so many questions here. Questions like, why was Jesus baptized? If John was preaching a baptism of repentance and calling people to turn from sin, and then Jesus wants to be baptized. Well, was he a sinner then? That's a bad answer to the question. We'll deal with it. What's the significance of the Spirit coming down? The Spirit had come down in other places in the Bible, but it says in the form of a dove. And then the Spirit stayed on this one, the Christ. Is this different from the way that others receive the Spirit? Why did God speak audibly? Where else did he do that in the Bible? We're going to explore that a little bit. When did God do this in history? What is the meaning? And then we'll have similar types of questions when we get into the genealogy next week as we look at the person of Christ. We'll save that conversation for then. So let's look at it. Let's look at the baptism of the Son of God the baptism of the Son of God, and then next week we'll look at the genealogy of the Son of Man. So these will really go together. I think this is meant to go together. The baptism of the Son of God. When you look at this outline, what you're going to see is that we have, um, we have the Trinity is prominent here. The Trinity is prominent. The Son obeys. The Spirit enables. The Father confirms. I want to read part of our statement, our EFCA statement of faith, about what we believe about Jesus Christ, the God-man. The statement says this, we believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, fully God and fully man, in one person, in two natures, Israel's promised Messiah. Now that's a handful to handle this morning as well. The statement goes on to say some other very important things, but this is what we want to focus on today. So we do believe that God is Trinity, And then we believe within the Trinity, we have the distinct natures of Christ, that he was fully, truly God, fully, truly man. We're going to see that coming out as we explore the gospel of Luke. There were a lot of early Christian heresies. Some people denied that Jesus was fully uh, deity, maybe saying he was something maybe divine, but not fully, truly, completely God. Something like Arianism, early church heresy, that was denied. And then there were some that denied his full humanity. How could this work for one man to be both God and man? And teaching like docetism, which said he just looked human, but he wasn't actually. We would reject both of those and say that he was, in fact, truly the God-man. So the son obeys. Let's see it. We're drawing attention to the Trinity here, and I want to introduce you to, I do this on occasion, your theological word for the day. I hope you brought your thinking caps. I figured, let's get theological this morning because everybody has an hour less sleep. This will be perfect timing, right? (laughs) Can we get more of that coffee going in the back? Your theological word for the day. I've mentioned this term before, but I want to mention it again because it becomes very, very relevant in this passage. 
the idea of inseparable operations. This is actually a, it's a, it's amazingly dense concept, but it's very simple to get on its surface. It just says this. All three persons of the Holy Trinity are at work in every action in the world. Okay? Maybe to simplify it even, even further. When God is at work, all three members of the Trinity are at work. Okay? Got that? I don't think we've thrown anybody off the side of the boat yet. It's very simple. When God works, all the members of the Trinity are at work. Simple enough. That's what we see here in the baptism of, of the Son of God, of Jesus we see the son who obeys and submits himself to baptism. We see the spirit enables, and we'll see that becomes very relevant in the temptation passage, which is coming up. And then we'll see that the father confirms. So all three members of the Trinity are here. We believe in the Trinity, and many of you may have noticed that we speak of the Trinity every single week. When do we do that, class? The benediction right? Our benediction is a Trinitarian formula. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. We say it every week. So we see this Trinitarian idea that's coming out here in the baptism event. Let's read it. This is a very, very short passage for us this morning, and then we get to read the long one with all the names next week. Verse 21. This is Luke three twenty-one. Now when all the people were baptized... And when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice from heaven and came a voice from heaven. You are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now there's all kinds of debate around this question. Why was Jesus baptized? Why was he baptized? I told you one answer that isn't a good answer, and that is Jesus was a sinner, and so he was baptized in a similar way, turning from his sin that other people were. That's a bad answer. That won't work for us. We know from plenty of other places in the scripture that Jesus was the man without sin. The whole gospel, the whole story falls apart if Jesus was a sinner. So what was he doing? I'll give you some theories, and then I'll tell you where I land on this. Some people say that Jesus was affirming the ministry of John the Baptist, so that's probably at least in part true. He was affirming the ministry of John the Baptist. So as he's baptized, he's saying, yes, this is the ministry. It's true. Some would go so far as to say, and I don't think this is accurate either. We have no evidence for this, that Jesus was actually one of John's disciples. He lives in relative anonymity up until this point. We don't know exactly what Jesus was up to. I don't think that's accurate, but some have said that. Some have said what Jesus is doing here is he's anticipating his work on the cross. So just as baptism pictures death and resurrection, immersion into death, resurrection to life, it's anticipating the work on the cross. Some would say that he's identifying with John and really a new brand of Judaism that's developing. This has some merit. They aren't out in the wilderness just like the glory of God comes not to the temple, but to the shepherds out in the field, it would fit that the new Israel is forming up out there in the wilderness apart from the establishment of the day. In a broad sense, of course, Jesus is simply identifying with his people. The people of God were being baptized and he did a similar thing. Some go further 
to say that it wasn't just that he was identifying with his people, he was actually identifying with the Gentiles, because in order for the Gentiles to come into God's family, they had to go through baptism. That's how they practiced it. Some have said it's maybe a reenactment of sorts that Jesus is going through, just like Joshua led the people through the Jordan and then into the land. It's sort of a reverse thing going on here where Jesus goes through the Jordan and then ends up being tempted in the wilderness. Some have said it's maybe a ceremonial cleansing of Jesus, a picture. He's being cleansed and then the spirit comes and rests inside of him. Jesus, of course, wasn't a sinner, so we have to be careful what we say with that. Tribe, and so was his mom. So John was very familiar with these things. All of these have some merit, and I understand where they all come from. Here's where I sort of land on this question. Why was it that Jesus is baptized, and how does Luke present this in particular? I think this. The purpose of including the baptism is to demonstrate the obedience of the Son who receives the Spirit for enabling him in the ministry as the Messiah. All right? It's the enabling work of the Spirit that we see come next. So that brings us to this next point. So the Son obeys. Next, the Spirit enables. I think it's marking the obedience of the Son to the will of the Father. The Son obeys, and then the Spirit enables. Let's see it here in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. Very, very interesting phrase. I want to make a footnote here on the work of the, on the, the way the Gospels are put together. Now, just back up for just a second. You're right there in verse 21. Back up to verse 20. We're talking about John. He said, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So I just want to note something for you here. As you're reading the Gospels, sometimes the Gospels are not strictly in chronological order. Do you see that there? John has been locked up. And then it tells us John baptized Jesus. Now, what's going on there? Did he baptize Jesus while he was locked up? Like, no. I think what Luke is doing is he's breaking there with the ministry of John the Baptist, and now we're moving into the ministry of Jesus. Sort of like a movie that, that you watch. Sometimes they'll show a scene and then come back and uh, come back to that later and jump ahead in the timeline for effect and for the purpose that the gospel writer is trying to, trying to pull. And I think that's what's going on here. So John's locked up, and then it tells us Jesus was baptized. And so... Then we move on into this interesting phrase that the spirit comes down, the heavens were opened up. Now, why a dove? Why a dove? You know, you probably know the dove has become the symbol, sort of symbol of Christianity in general, partly from this text, and we have a few others as well. There were uh, doves mentioned in the sacrifice, the sacrificial system. You can bring a dove for purity offering. They really picture purity and innocence. It's the dove that uh, Noah sends out from the ark. Initially, the dove goes out and the first one comes back. Second time he does it, the dove goes out, brings a branch back, letting him know that the waters are receding. Third time, the dove doesn't come back. He found a spot to make a nest and like, forget you guys, I've had enough of that boat. And he's gone. And so there are doves mentioned a few different places. 
And it's, uh, it does raise a question, like, why is that? And I think it's just, uh, it's, it's pointing us to the innocence, not to be confused with weakness. There are plenty of places in the Bible where the Spirit of God comes on particular people, but there's nothing quite like this that happens. One of the interesting things that happens here is the Spirit of God comes and stays on Jesus. And John says, this is what you're looking for over in John 1, 32 through 33. John doesn't record the baptism event specifically, but he does mention the Spirit descending. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. This is John the Baptist. He on whom you see the Spirit descended and remained, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He's the one. He's the Messiah, the one that is to come. So the Spirit comes, stays on Christ. Very, very interesting. So the Spirit is enabling the Son to do the Messianic ministry. Then we see that the Father confirms. The Father confirms. And we're going to take a minute, and I want to show you a few places in the Bible where God speaks from heaven. It doesn't happen that often. It's fascinating. It's very fascinating. In fact, in the ministry of Jesus, there are only three places where we have where God speaks from heaven. I'll show you those first, and then I want to back up, and let's see some other places where God spoke from heaven. God speaks from heaven. I, I think we get the impression sometimes that in Bible times, everywhere you went in Israel, you had this booming voice of God, like a you know, PA loudspeaker at your military base, where there's just, there's just always people talking to you, or the you know, announcements in the store that they're telling you to come buy this product or check out this discount or whatever it is. It wasn't like that. It was a really, really massive deal when God speaks from heaven. Huge deal. It doesn't happen all the time. And so that's why this really matters. God speaks from heaven in the ministry of Jesus. We have this story. Luke records another one for us. This is the transfiguration story. We'll get to this one one of these days down the road in Luke. In Luke chapter 9, Jesus has taken his little inner circle up onto the mountain and he is transfigured is what it says. He is transformed and his clothes begin to shine and it's an incredible display of the glory of God. And along with this, with this close ring of the disciples, and a voice came out from the cloud, this cloud that filled the, this is Old Testament imagery. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Listen to him. So this is another place where we see this. Then we have another one in John chapter 12. This is when Jesus is heading towards his final climactic moments, moving towards the cross. He says, now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Before this purpose, I've come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Now that is so interesting. Jesus is praying, says, Father, glorify your name. And the Father says, I have. And then the crowd that stood there, they heard it, they heard it said, that it, and it had thundered. So very similar to Old Testament language. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Right after this, Jesus said, that was for y'all, not for me. 
just so you know. So this voice from heaven that's confirming the work of the Son only three times in the New Testament. So what's the history of this? There are other times in the Bible where God has spoken, and he's spoken from heaven. Let's look at them. Exodus 19, in verse 19. Just a little bit of context here. This is at Mount Sinai. So the Israelites are captive. They are in Egypt. God leads them out, and he leads them to a mountain. And at this mountain is where they will receive the word of God. They will receive the Ten Commandments, and they will receive the Book of the Covenant, which follows just after this in the book of Exodus. And in the Book of the Covenant, they'll learn how to live in relationship with God. So they go and they meet their God, quite literally. God calls Moses up on the mountain and speaks to him first. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. It's an incredible experience when God decides to speak from heaven. And so then the next day, the people gather up at the foot of the mountain, and God speaks again. And this is the only place in the Bible where God publicly addresses a group of people in a didactic, instructive, teaching sort of way. It doesn't happen anywhere else. Every other time, God's word is mediated, other than the couple of instances I've mentioned where God is speaking, but it's usually to individuals. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And right after this comes the Ten Commandments. It doesn't happen much. It's very, very significant when God chooses to speak from heaven. He does it in other places, though. Let's look at a couple of these. This one's very interesting to me also. Story of God speaking to Hagar and then also to Abraham. Now, the story of Hagar, just to remind us, God made a promise, and we're backing up in the timeline. This is before the Exodus event and before God revealed himself in that way. So back in Genesis, God had made a promise to Abram, then changed to Abraham, to bring him an heir, to bring him a son, and through that son there would come many, many generations and a people would be raised up. Well, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they get impatient with the promise. It's taking a long time and they're very old. They're in their 70s initially and they're in their 80s, then they're in their 90s and this promise still hasn't come to pass. Now I know some of y'all are getting really nervous talking about being pregnant in your 70s, 80s, 90s. That's that's an experience, right? Right? a miraculous experience, and they question God and say, hey, um, is this really going to (laughs) happen? Like, we're kind of older now. Like, I think our time has passed for this. And God keeps confirming the promise to them, says, no, your wife Sarah is going to have a baby. Well, they take matters in their own hands, and Abraham ends up having a child by Sarah's handmaiden named Hagar. This child's name is Ishmael. And God takes care of Ishmael, as we'll see in this story here. The long story short on this is Sarah ends up despising Hagar after she has this child and sends her away. So she's basically exiled from Abraham and his family. And so Hagar goes away with her child, and at one point she's out of water, and she's out in the wilderness on her own. She thinks she's going to die. 
And as a mom or a dad, I'm sure you can identify with this. She takes her baby and she can't bear to watch the baby die. So she sits it under a tree and walks away and goes and sits down on her own. Says, I just can't bear to watch. And it's from that moment that a voice from heaven rings out. Very interesting. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. And she takes the baby back up and God provides for her and he ends up living on. Now, the really interesting part of this story is he ends up being the bad guy and troubling God's people. But throughout the course of redemptive history, we see that there's this conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and Ishmael ends up being on the wrong side of history, as it were, but God preserved this line to happen. Sort of like you need Thanos for all those Marvel movies, right? It's a short show if there's nothing there. I mean, if they'd gotten him the first time, there would be nothing to report. So Ishmael is preserved, but then watch what happens. Next chapter. Next chapter is when Abraham, they've now had their covenant son, Isaac, and then the Lord calls him to sacrifice Isaac. Now they've just waited and waited. I've just told you how long it took. It was years, decades in the making. And then finally when Isaac gets of age, he says, go and sacrifice your son. Well, this doesn't make a lot of sense from a human vantage point perspective. But then watch what happens, a very, very similar experience to what happened with Hagar. But the angel of the Lord called to him, that's Abraham, from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here I am. And then we see the story continues on that the angel stopped Abraham from sacrificing Isaac. So here we have two stories, two sons, both sons of Abraham, both preserved by a voice from heaven, the angel of the Lord, that stops them from killing their children, that preserves them. Really, really interesting. So that's a story from God speaking from heaven. One other one that's worth looking at, God speaks from heaven in the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You might remember that Nebuchadnezzar, he was the ruler in Babylon the people who had conquered Israel and taken them into captivity. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's pretty awesome. He's having a walk one day out on his balcony. He says, look at this kingdom that I've built. God had already warned him. It's not gonna end well for you, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is sort of proud of himself with his chest puffed out. Look at all that I have done. And then while those words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And it's from here that he's sent out like a beast of the field to live for seven years until he comes back and recognizes, I'm not the ultimate king, he's the king of kings. So when God speaks from heaven, it is a big deal. Let's come back to our text here this morning. So here in Luke 3, what did he say? In 22, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Very, very similar to the language that we see happening at the transfiguration much later. With his son, he is well pleased. The voice from heaven, yet again, confirming that he is the true son. 
Let's wrap this up with just a few conclusions. I might even let you go a little bit early today. Don't tell anybody. One of my pieces of advice for young preachers when I have an opportunity to help with training preachers, I say, whenever you're finished, stop. Don't, don't try to make it go longer than it should. It's just good advice. That's actually applicable in all sorts of things. Whenever you're done, just, just stop. Okay, conclusions. One, Christ modeled obedience for us. Christ modeled obedience for us in all things, not simply in the baptism, but the baptism is certainly a part of that. Jesus did not have to be baptized in order to symbol a change from death to life or in demonstration of repentance like we do, but yet he obeyed the will of his Father. As we follow our study through the Gospel of Luke, we're going to come back to these points over and over and over again. In what ways can we imitate Christ? Peter found the example of Christ as instructed for him, 1 Peter 2, 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Christ is our example. So whenever you see a story of Jesus, you can always ask the question, is there an example here that I can obey as well? Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Of course, there's distinctions here. Everything Christ did, we're not supposed to do, we can't do. But we can imitate him in so many ways. Obedience to the Father. Two, Christ lived by the Spirit. This becomes really important in the next section after the genealogy when we see that Jesus is full of the Holy Spirit and he resists the urges and temptations of Satan by living by the Spirit. And we'll talk about that. Jesus lived by the Spirit in a very similar way. We're commanded to live by the Spirit. In the text where we're commanded, context is always walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. How do we walk in the Spirit? It's by saying no to the flesh. That is to walk in the Spirit. Christ lived by the Spirit, and so are we to live by the Spirit. And then lastly, last point I'll leave you with, is the Father is always at work. The Father is always at work. We see here that many have accused God of being sort of like a watchmaker. He just sort of wound up the earth and he doesn't actually interact with it. Well, the Gospels challenge that idea because here we have a time when God interacted in history, he spoke audibly, and people heard it. Luke thought it was important enough to, to include it in his gospel account. This is part of the way that you can have certainty that God is true and real, is he actually interacted. He has a plan, and he is always at work. Well, I hope as, you, as we continue our walk through the gospel of Luke that it will help build our confidence that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah. We began our time talking about the ideas of purpose and identity. Jesus Christ was the God-man. He was the Son of God. He's the Son of Man. He lived a perfect life, and yet he died a sinner's death so that we can be made right in him. Our identity is now wrapped up in who Christ is and what he's done. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for your word, and we thank you for 